All right, John 15, 26 and 27. We are talking about the Holy Spirit, giving definition to the person of the Holy Spirit. Um, he is both God and a person, right? God is personal. The Holy Spirit is no exception. And so as we've covered at the start of this session, up at the, the basics section of page 24, He is personal. We refer to Him as He. The Holy Spirit is no it. He is no force. He is a person. And He is, of course, God. We covered that looking at His deity. Gave you several passages to look at there in that section. And now we're finishing off this introductory lesson about the Holy Spirit by looking at Jesus' teachings. Last week we saw how Jesus referred to Him as the parakletos, that's the Greek word, but it's the one that gets translated differently in the different English translations to comforter or teacher or advocate or helper, counselor. All of those words are accurate to who he is and are accurate translations of that singular word. It just has a lot of connotations because the word means to come alongside. Parakletos, the one who comes alongside. All right, so let's continue looking at what Jesus teaches us about the Spirit. Uh, Let's read John 15, 26 and 27. I am not there. I don't even have my Bible app open yet. So would someone read that for us? John 15, 26, 27. Who's got it? Stan, go ahead. All right. So again, we have Jesus here making reference to the Holy Spirit as parakletos, the one who comes alongside, who is the helper. And who does he help? I guess we should make sure we really have the basics down. Who does he help? Yeah. He helps the disciples, doesn't he? Jesus is talking to his disciples here. He's saying he is your helper, the one whom I am sending. He is your helper. Now, of course, he has a relationship with the world too, and we'll look at that. I think we touched on it briefly last week. But we looked at this last week. The number one job of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to testify to Christ. That's what he does. And we talked about how we can tell if an action attributed to the Spirit is false, and that is, whatever the action is, doesn't glorify Christ. So remember, uh, you know, the the Holy Spirit told me to cheat my neighbor. Uh, No, no, He didn't, okay? That doesn't glorify, that doesn't honor the Lord, and so no, that's not the case. Uh, The Holy Spirit told me to become a Jehovah's Witness, to follow the teachings of, uh, what was his name, uh, the guy who started it, and no, I'm going to forget his name. Um, I've got two different, I've got, as, I've got two different uh, names rolling through my head, and neither one of them are, are the name. Uh, Charles Taze Russell, that's the name. The Holy Spirit told me to become a Jehovah's Witness to follow the teachings of Charles Taze Russell. No, he did not. No, he did not, because that religion reduces Jesus to Michael the archangel. That religion teaches that Jesus is not God. Okay, that, that religion teaches Jesus did not die on a cross. Okay, so uh, we have to be careful about what we attribute to the Spirit, don't we? It has to honor Jesus. John 16, very next chapter, 5 through 11. Yeah, we talked about this last week. Just run your eyes over this passage here. What, what's the Holy Spirit's relationship with the world? Mm-hmm, good, convicting of sin and righteousness, and judgment. Okay. And we wa- walked through what those three things mean about how sin, righteousness, and judgment factor into a person being converted to Christ. 
You can't be converted to Christ without being convicted of sin, can you? No, you cannot. Because uh, then what do you say you're being saved from? Yeah, right. Yeah, then at that, at that point, you're just joining a club, and Jesus is the club president, and that's pretty much it, right? Well, when you're convicted of sin, you see Jesus as Savior, and when you believe in Jesus as Savior, that's when you're converted, that's when you're saved. All right, so that's the relationship that the Holy Spirit has with the world. Now, of course, there is a reality, too, where the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and the world doesn't respond, right? Do you think every time God convicts a person, that person becomes a believer in Jesus? No. I can think of times in my life before I became a believer, when I knew something was wrong, I was convicted. Maybe I even heard preaching. Maybe I heard Bible teaching somewhere. And nothing really registered, but there was just a little bit, a little hint of conviction. Okay, well, not everybody who's convicted gets saved, but everybody who gets saved has been convicted. Okay, that's the case. All right, John 16, 12 to 15, the last passage we'll look at on this page. Someone want to read those four verses, John 16, 12 to 15. Who's got it? Jen, go ahead. All right, so Jesus gives the Holy Spirit this title in verse 13, the Spirit of Truth. And we looked at this title a couple of weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, about how this can be said of the Holy Spirit because He is God. That means He is true. Through and through, there's no drop of falsehood in the person of the Holy Spirit. He can rightly be called the Spirit of Truth. And Jesus goes on to explain here what He will be doing. And so the question is, based on this passage... What is the Holy Spirit constantly doing in His ministry, according to these verses here? What's He doing? Good. Yes, He is taking the truth and declaring it to us. And what is the means by which He does that? Does He call you on the phone? Does He write you a love letter? Okay, how does the Holy Spirit speak truth into your life? Hey, it has to start with God's Word here, doesn't it? God has given us a book, and we're told that the Holy Spirit searches the mind of God. We'll look at this probably next week. We'll get to it in 1 Corinthians 2. The Holy Spirit searches the mind of God and delivers to us truths from God Himself. And He does that through the Word of God. We have this book that God has inspired, that God has preserved that is kept for us. We go to it not just like we go to any other book. You who have been studying the Bible for a long time, years, decades, you know that you haven't exhausted it yet. You're not going to exhaust it. Okay? You're not reading the Bible like you would ring or read uh, White Fang or Moby Dick or a book like that. It's, it's different. We're, we're categorically different here. It's a spiritual book. There's a spiritual element to what's going on when we read the Bible because we have the Holy Spirit involved. And He's imparting to us truths from God. He's illumining our minds. He's causing us to understand the words on the page and to make spiritual application. And He gets this from Jesus. Verse 15, look at the, the order here. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that He, the Spirit of truth, takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So, Father, Son, Spirit, all three are God, all three are eternal creator. 
We've looked at that now for each of those persons in this study. You can go all the way back to the first pages. We were looking at God the Father as infinite, eternal creator. We looked at God the Son, infinite, eternal creator. We've looked at God the Spirit, infinite, eternal creator. However, there's order there. Okay, there's order. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. And here's just one of those many verses where we see the difference in the persons, where the Father shares with the Son, and then the Spirit shares with the Son, taking from the Son to disclose to us. The Father is not the one who is being sent by the Son. The Spirit is the one being sent by the Son. The Father is not the one taking from the Son to give to us and illumine our minds as we read His Word. That's the Spirit's role. And so even though all three are God, there's a distinct function for each of the persons here, isn't there? And the Holy Spirit is the most personal of the three persons in our lives. He's the one who intimately, personally, guides, directs, convicts, etc. Okay? I kind of answered that question just now, didn't I? All right. 1 Corinthians 2, like I said, we'll get to it next week, I think. Thoughts or questions here as we reflect on Jesus' teachings about the Holy Spirit? Okay. Wow. Nothing, huh? Okay. Well, that's the end of, end of this lesson. Now we'll turn the page. Oh, my. Screen went black, but we're okay. Let's do... Well, as we left off on that note, essentially, of the Holy Spirit uses the Bible, it's very appropriate that our next lesson is about the Spirit's role in delivering the Bible to us. You'll notice at the top of the page there, you have the title for this lesson. He is an author. The Holy Spirit is an author. So today and next Sunday... Oh, it's a two-pager, isn't it? And the next Sunday, all right, so the next three Sundays here, we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit's role, not only in inspiring the Bible, but then illuminating us as readers of the Bible who have the Spirit. Very important that you get this and understanding how the Holy Spirit works in our lives, okay? The big idea, this is the blank at the top of the page, the Holy Spirit is the divine author of the Bible, The Holy Spirit is the divine author of the Bible. There will be times when we talk about Scripture and we'll say something like we need to look at the the intent of the author-author. And you'll notice that one of the A's is capitalized. And that's, of course, because we're referring to God. So in one sense, if someone asks, who wrote the Bible? You know, that's a basic question you might get from a child or from someone who just has no real exposure to Christianity. Who wrote the Bible? Well, on the one hand, you can say there were several authors. I think if you count uh, through the Psalms, the different authors of the Psalms, there are over 40 authors of the Bible in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And they all had different occupations from lowly fishermen to very powerful kings, And there there are all kinds of authors of the Bible, dozens. But in another sense, you could say, well, there's only one author of the Bible, God the Spirit. Both are true. You can't have one reality gobble up the other. 
You have to hold these in tension and say, there's but one author, and yet there are also many human authors, dozens of human authors. Both are true. Inspiration, when we talk about the Bible being inspired by the Spirit, what we mean is that the do- it's the doctrine of God's intervention into history through the written word with the view of offering mankind truth by way of human authors. That's a very long sentence. So you can take that and condense it down in a way that you can repeat it in your own words there with the same idea. But you have these blanks here on your sheet that you can fill out. It's the doctrine. Inspiration is the doctrine of God's intervention into history through the written word with the view of offering mankind truth by way of human authors. It's the written word, it's human authors, but this is God's intervention. Now, it's pretty interesting, isn't it? Because there are times when God intervenes into human history with no instrument in his hand whatsoever. There's no means. He just shows up. You can think of Paul's conversion experience on the road to Damascus. Paul heard from the Lord himself, no middleman. There, there he saw the Lord, well, kind of. He was like Manfred Mann's earth band. He was blinded by the light. He fell to the ground. You guys don't listen to Manfred Mann's earth band? And uh, Mandy does. And uh, um, he is actually written by Bruce Springsteen. I can go on a tangent with that if we wanted to. The Manfred Mann version is way better. But uh, he was blinded by the light, but he heard directly from the Lord, didn't he? He had this direct interaction with the Lord Jesus. But when we go to the Bible, we understand that there were human authors involved to create this written word. That doesn't make it any less inspired. That doesn't make it any less divine. Because God is able, as the creator, to do with creation exactly what he wishes, isn't he? So this is a faith thing. God is able to take creation and to do whatever he wants with creation to create the exact result that he wants. There are going to be some people, of course, that you interact with who say, well, because the Bible has these lowercase a authors, has all these, you know, uh, fishermen who are uneducated, sinners like us, well, the product of their pen is going to be defiled. You can't open your Bible and say, this is the pure word of God, because these men were like us. They're fallen human beings. Hmm. Well, you can answer that by having a robust understanding of who God is and what the Holy Spirit did in creation or in uh, creating Scripture. Because the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, ultimately. And God is able, as creator, to do with creation whatever He wills to get the result that He wants. So, I gave you some thoughts there, but what else is in your mind as far as what's at stake when it comes to our definition of inspiration? What do you think is at stake here? Nothing? Does it matter if you think the Bible's inspired or not? Okay. All of what? Hey, so Mandy just made a massive claim. If the Bible's not inspired, if we lose the doctrine of inspiration, you have no salvation. So, (laughs) what's at stake? Ah, nothing big, heaven or hell, you know, eternity. Eternal destiny on the line. No big deal. That's a huge thing, isn't it? But, I mean, this is true. What Mandy said is exactly right. 
If you don't have a doctrine of inspiration, what's your gospel? Your gospel is just whatever you think's right. It's your idea. It's whatever your opinion is. But if God inspired the Bible, we point to God's word and say, this is what God said. And if this is what God has said, you better listen. Or then there are consequences to rejecting. If the Bible's not inspired and we say, well, I feel like this is true, and someone rejects that, they're just rejecting you. And no one goes to hell for rejecting you. Okay? So there's a lot on the line here. When it comes to inspiration, if we really believe that the Bible's inspired, then that affects the entire faith. It affects the whole of Christianity. Nothing that you believe or practice goes untouched. All right? It affects everything. So here are some quotes, inspirational quotes, as we look at what some theologians have said about the doctrine of inspiration. John Frame defines it this way, a divine act creating an identity between a divine word and a human word. John Frame's always in the philosophical, okay, so he phrases things a little bit differently. But uh, when you think of the words of Scripture, like, um, let's say, uh, what would be a good word to use here? Like the human author is writing and says, um, the wages of sin is death. Where does that come from? Who knows that verse? Okay, good, good. Romans 6.23. All right. <clears throat> Very good. <laughs> and the, the second part of that verse is obviously just as important. But the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, here's a word that's given on a page. Well, John Frame says, inspiration is this belief, it's a divine act, so it's initiated by God, where you have an identity between the divine author and the human author to create that phrase. So we ask, well, whose phrase was that? This comes, again, from Romans. Paul wrote Romans. Is that Paul's phrase or is that God's phrase? Okay, there you go. Now, yeah, you say one or the other and you're not wrong, right? God's phrase, yes. Paul's phrase, yes. But there's an identity here. There's a shared identity with the phrase. That phrase is rightly attributed to both of them. Yet, when we say that it's Paul's phrase, we do say it was Paul's phrase under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Not from his flesh, but as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, okay? In Charles Ryrie's Basic Theology, he says... God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that they composed and recorded without error his message to mankind in the words of their original writings. Without error is an interesting phrase. Um, wow, I'm kind of blanking right now. Have we gone through bibliology yet in this class? That might be next. I'm pretty sure that's next, actually. So we haven't defined this word yet. But the word is, I'll give it to you early here, the word is inerrancy. I just wrote a, an article for a, a journal that was all about biblical inerrancy and why it's important that we still hold to inerrancy. Inerrancy is the belief that the Bible is without error in all of its teachings. Okay, So you've got two parts here, the prefix in and the uh, body of the word there, errancy. We believe the Bible is inerrant. We hold to the doctrine of inerrancy. It is without, that's what that prefix means in this case, without error. That is also very, very critical. As Mandy gave that sweeping answer earlier about inspiration touching everything, 
You could say the same about inerrancy. Once you start introducing the idea that the Bible is right in 99.99% of its teachings, what have you just done? Yeah. Okay, so at a basic level, you're claiming it is in error somewhere. And what else you've done is you've just rejected Christianity. Because who gets to determine what's wrong? That's exactly right. No longer has God spoken and we are submissive to our creator. Now we are standing in authority over what God has said, telling God where he got it right and where he got it wrong. Now that's a position that won't last for long, will it? You can enjoy it with every breath you have on this earth, but after that comes judgment. And you'll find out who has authority. Pretty quickly. Christianity has definitionally this view that the Bible is without error. It is authoritative. It is inspired by God. It has all the authority in our life. If you call yourself a Christian and you say the Bible's wrong in any place, you're not a Christian. All right? Pretty big statement, but it's true. Well, sheesh, yeah, if that's not blaspheming the Holy Spirit, uh, that'd be close, wouldn't it? Yeah. Because he's the divine author. The divine author. Thoughts on that? I'm giving you a lot to work with today. All right. Very good. We'll just keep rolling. More quotes. John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew in their book, Biblical Doctrine. God produced the scriptures by influencing the human author's own thoughts. That's interesting. When we get into the mechanics of inspiration, that'll be in the next section when we talk about the Bible, uh, after we talk about the Holy Spirit. We'll talk through this. Did, uh, did the human authors turn into robots? That, there's a, a view out there called dictation theory. In dictation theory... Uh, they, there's this um, idea that God gave the human authors every uh, word outside of their own personality and will. So basically, uh, they, they turned into a robotic form. Uh, we don't believe in the dictation theory. We believe all words of the Bible were inspired, but we don't believe in dictation theory. So we'll talk about that. In any case, you can say that It is true that God produced the scriptures by influencing the human author's own thoughts. That's absolutely true. All of the words in the Bible are God's words, Wayne Grudem says in his systematic theology. That's a great summary statement. All of the words in the Bible are God's words. Okay. Now there's um, a point where some people will, you know, raise their hand and say, no, I can't, I'm not, I can't go with you on this because even though God inspired the Bible at the beginning. He had the apostles and prophets at the beginning of the church, and they were writing these messages from God to the early believers. Yeah, I agree with all that. But then the Bible got lost. It's been, you know, thousands of years since they were originally written in those first few hundred years. Everything was lost, and so you've got man basically recreating what the Bible originally said, and we actually can't know what the Bible originally said. There are some people who will say that. Well, when we get into the course on, or the section on bibliology, or yeah, bibliology, the study of the Bible. We'll talk through that, not just inspiration, but preservation. 
why do we believe the Bible has been preserved well enough to where we open it up in English today in the year 2023, we can trust the words that are written on the page. Next section, we'll get to that. So it'll be eh, five, six weeks. We'll get there. This is what keeps you coming back, see? Now, there's actually a lot to say on that. We believe in verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal means words, plenary means all. All the words were inspired. That's what we believe in. And so there are a couple of texts, we'll even look at them here today, a couple of texts that get to what that means, but as far as defining terms and stuff, that'll have to wait till that next section, okay? But we'll give you some idea of it today. Won't leave you totally hanging. Again, MacArthur and Mayhew, the doctrine of Scripture is absolutely fundamental and essential because it identifies the only true source for all Christian truth. Scripture repeatedly claims to be the Word of God. The prophets appealed to it as the foundation for God's promises and judgments. Christ and His apostles based the whole of Christian doctrine on the Scriptures. Okay? Some, those were summary statements. Um... Hey, we got one more blank, I guess, before we get into the text. Our goal is to discover what the Bible has to say about itself, not to impose a preconceived definition into our theology. This is absolutely critical. This is what we always want to do. No matter what subject we're talking about in this church, when we get together and we're discussing a doctrine, it's our goal to see what the Bible has to say, not what we think the Bible says. Sometimes you think you know what the Bible says, and then you... Then you open it up and you say, oh, I've, I've never read that before. When did, when did God put that in there? Well, it was there all along. Okay, so we need to go slowly through these passages to understand what God says. Scripture speaks of itself as being directly from God and consequently authoritative. Okay, there's your last blank before we get to 2 Peter. Scripture speaks of itself as being, oh, sorry, typo, directly from God and consequently authoritative. All right? That's also very, very important. All right, 2 Peter chapter 1. That was enough of humans speaking. Let's get to what God has said. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 to 21. These two texts, you see them there on your sheet. You got 2 Peter 1 and 2 Timothy 3. If you have not committed these references to memory, you need to. I'm not saying memorize the whole passage. If you did, that would be great. But memorize where to find them in the Bible. Because these are the two key passages when it comes to discussing the inspiration of Scripture. These are the two big ones. 2 Peter 1 and 2 Timothy 3. So would someone please read for us 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21. Okay, go ahead, Manny. All right, so especially that last verse there of the chapter, you can see how that's talking about inspiration, right? No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But how, do, how was the prophecy made? Well, they were moved by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. Moved by the Holy Spirit. Okay? He's, he's the one we're studying in this section. And so we need to make a special note of that. It's the Holy Spirit's activity that has led to the production of Scripture here. And again, not the Father, not the Son, and that's not because they are less God than the Holy Spirit. That's certainly not the case. But the Holy Spirit had a particular function, had a particular role in the creation of the Bible. He was the one moving the prophets to create Scripture. What could this mean, do you think, as we hone in on that phrase, 
to be moved by the Holy Spirit. So, Joe, this kind of gets to your question. What, what does it mean to be moved by the Holy Spirit? Because, of course, you'll hear some people say, I was so moved by this, that, or the other thing. Uh, it's a common way we use that phrase. But what do you think Peter had in mind here as he talked about prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit? Okay, prompted, provoked, those are good words. Okay, understanding. Okay, yeah, so of course many times there was new information delivered, especially when you think about prophets. Uh, they were giving new information to the people of God, and yet their understanding of God's program, the way he's he's. Laying things out through history. Yeah, the deeper understanding. What else? These are good things. Where it says, where that one quote said, uh, God worked in the thoughts of the writers. And all of, all of the Bible's words are God's words. Yeah, you asked, what does that mean? How does that work? <laughs> it's okay. All right, well, we'll leave it there for now. And like I said, we'll talk about it more when we get into the next section. So, The big idea is that the message of the prophets originated with God. Scripture did not come about by the will of man, but by the will of God. So think of Ezekiel or Jeremiah or Obadiah or Amos or any of those prophets or Moses. They're writing a message down or their message is being written down by somebody else. And that message that is being preserved, well, it's being revealed in that moment and then being preserved, it originated with God. It didn't start in their own minds. Like Isaiah didn't say, I've got a great idea. I'm going to really fire everybody up. I'm going to be a cheerleader for Israel, encourage them by talking about the suffering servant of the Messiah who's going to bear our transgressions. And then he had this idea and God just blessed his work. That's not how inspiration works. Inspiration is God has a message. He chooses a human instrument, and that message comes through the human instrument to his people, and he preserves it all the way through, okay? Bible authors were led by the Holy Spirit. Their hands, their minds were moved by God's hand, by God's mind. Of course, they had literal hands and literal brains, God doesn't have literal hands, literal physical brains, but you get the idea. They were led by God himself. Their communication was God's communication. Okay. And that's actually a big part of what it means to be made in God's image. What does it mean to be an image bearer of God? Well, you can communicate. I mean, we study animals and see ways that they communicate, right? And some of it's obviously really impressive, and it speaks to the creative power of God. Bats and dolphins and birds and these things, they can communicate, but they can't communicate like we can communicate. They can't discuss the deep things of God. They can't read and understand what it is God has said. When it comes to communication, this is something that has to do with who we are as human beings made in God's image, able to receive God's word. But for the prophets, it was also to be able to speak God's words. Because they're made in God's image and chosen by God for this particular task, they were able to communicate 
God's communication in a way that a horse just couldn't, right? Or in a way anyone else couldn't. MacArthur and Mayhew again, talking about inspiration. It was a miraculous process that directly involved the personal attention and directed power of the Holy Spirit. The expression carried along is the same as that used in Acts to describe a ship being moved along by the wind. You can see that in Acts 27. So when it says that they were moved by the Holy Spirit or carried along by the Holy Spirit, the same Greek word that's talked about the wind going into the sails of a ship to move the ship around. Kind of cool, huh? Same idea. These prophets, the apostles, were moved by the Holy Spirit. Yes, the, uh, the permanent residency of the Holy Spirit in our lives, yeah, that did not happen until Pentecost. Um, he would come and go before that. He would come upon someone and go. And yes, inspiration falls right into that. I think, thanks for making that connection. He would come upon Isaiah or, you know, pick, pick these prophets. He would come upon them for the purpose of inspiring them with a particular message. Uh, we don't have any evidence about how long he stayed, right? I mean, it's, it's possible there were some prophets like David who were told uh, by God, you know, you're going to have the Holy Spirit for the rest of your days on earth. We don't have that information if that happened. It's obviously very conceivable that Habakkuk had the Holy Spirit for just a short time in his life for a specific purpose to write that book. But for believers, of course, we have the Holy Spirit as a permanent helper. Jesus told us that he is with us forever. Now, does he still inspire us to write scripture? Hmm. Oh, okay. Well, we'll get to that soon. All right. We'll get to it soon. God the Spirit superintended the process by which man heard from God. It is one of his ministries. This inspiration no longer goes on today. Hey, we got to it pretty quickly. This particular ministry of the Holy Spirit is not an ongoing ministry. And uh, we will get into that more and defend that more as time goes on. But just um, showing that up front, I do think it's important to mention that here. Uh, Many of us have, I don't have my physical Bible with me. Many of us have some blank pages in the backs of our Bibles. That is not for you to make an inspired appendix to Scripture, okay? Sometimes it'll even say that with the heading, notes. Those aren't inspired notes, okay? The Bible has been completed. He is no longer moving people to write new new books of the Bible. That's done. And again, we'll talk more about that as time goes on, but just getting that out there now. 2 Timothy. Let's go back just a little ways in our New Testament to 2 Timothy. Chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, and we'll look at just the last two verses of that chapter, 16 and 17. Will someone please read those two verses for us? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Shauna. All right. Let's just go basic interpretation here. Who is doing what in this verse? Or these two verses? Who's doing what? Well, let's back up, verse 16. Let's go one theme at a time. What is God doing? Okay, good. Inspiring or breathing out. God is inspiring Scripture. Now, some people have in their translations uh, 
All Scripture is breathed out by God. And that's actually a more accurate translation as far as word for word goes. Because uh, the word is, let's see, let's see if I can do it without the, uh, 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 neustos, the anustos. Okay, so you've got this part, which is theos in the Greek, which is the prefix for God. Theos. And then you've got this word here, which is neustos. It's where we get the word spirit, which is pneuma. Remember we talked about pneumatics. It's a word we still use today. That comes from the Greek. That's why it starts with a P. Why does, why does pneumatics start with the P? Greek. Okay. So God, and then this word can mean breath or wind or spirit. Okay. And in this context, it's talking about breath. Scripture is God's breath. How's that for a definition of inspiration? What does it mean that Scripture is inspired? Well, it means that the Bible was breathed out by God. Now, even with human authors, even with the, you've got Paul, Peter, John, all these guys, they still say that the result that's coming off of their pen is God's breath. That's pretty amazing. God is able, as infinite creator, to do whatever he wants with creation and get the result he wants. He can use a fallen human being. Oh, I gave you two. I gave you Greek and I gave you English, didn't I? Sorry. Well, I got to correct this for consistency's sake. We have, (laughs) this one is God or theos, and this is breath or, we'll just do pneuma. Okay, there we go. Okay, that feels better. Um. So the result is the breath of God. So the first thing we see in this, in this passage is that God is inspiring. God has inspired Scripture. Okay? Now, what is man doing in this verse? Okay. Yeah. So man is actually just squarely in, in the uh, camp of receiving, isn't he? Man is receiving the Word of God. Yes, the, and that leads to being adequate, being mature, being complete, being ready for every good work. Okay? Man receives the breath of God, applies it to his life, the Word of God, and when you think about the context of fellowship, the context of the local church, look at these action items that you have in verse 16. Teaching, reproofing, correcting, training, you, you don't do all that just with yourself. Now, there is, of course, an element where you do that with yourself. You can train yourself in the Word of God by reading the Word of God. But I don't think that's all Paul had in mind here, do you? No. I think Paul had in mind this kind of stuff, where believers get together and we open the Word of God and we're being trained in righteousness by the Word of God. So that's an important uh, aspect to keep in mind here is that this is all in the context of the local church. Believers come together, the Word of God is central to our fellowship. You ever wonder why we have pulpits and why all the chairs face the pulpit? It's not because I'm going up there or Tyler's going up there, because ultimately we don't want you hearing from us. We want you hearing from the Word of God. That pulpit means something. It represents something. 
We have a word-centered fellowship, a Bible-centered church. I, I don't like it. I'm not going to like, you know, go to the mat and wrestle somebody on this. I, don't, I just don't like it when the pulpits get really thin and they go off to the side. I don't like that. Personally, I just don't like that. I think the pulpit communicates something. And it doesn't communicate my authority at all. If, that's, if you've ever had that in your mind, just get it out. I have no authority. All I have is the Word of God. And God calls people to certain offices in the church, and they only have authority insofar as they are accurately handling the Word of truth. That's it. Because the Word of God has all the authority. And so when we think of Scripture being inspired, it's not just, oh, that's a really nice thing, so maybe that means I'll read my Bible every now and then, and then that's it. It actually affects not only your personal life, but it affects your church. It affects the body life, Christ's body, as we're gathered together as members of the same body. It affects all that we do, the advice we give to one another, the correction we give to one another, all of that. It has to be word-centered. Otherwise, we're off in left field somewhere. Scripture has been inspired by God. As readers, we are affected by the author and his word. Thus, we are equipped to serve. That's our motto as a church, equipping God's people to serve. We take that from Ephesians chapter 4. Orchard Hills Bible Church exists to equip God's people to serve in the church and in the community. And we never entertain for a moment that we can do that apart from the Bible. We can only be equipped insofar as we know the Scripture. Scripture is God-breathed. Um, oh, here we go. Here's a good question for you. So I already covered that, Scripture being God-breathed. How is this truth different from the way that the world understands the nature of the Bible? Let's throw up a contrast here. Who can give us some thoughts about how non-Christians view the Bible? Yet people who, especially if they've been burned by religion, will say, yeah, I know what that's all about, and that's just to control people. Oh, good. Yeah, you'll hear those... Uh, Greasy, greasy guys in their parents' basement who make YouTube videos talk about how, oh, the Bible's just that book of desert stories, you know, it's all made up, it doesn't have any relevance to today, yada, yada, yada. You know, people who have actually never looked at any of the issues involved but think that they're experts and, you know, they can get a few clicks online. Their 13 subscribers are very, you know, enamored by these videos, yeah, that kind of stuff. It's, it's so silly. But at the end of the day, whether we're talking about some silly, goofy atheist who lives in mom's basement, or we're talking about a highly educated PhD like Bart Ehrman, who teaches classes at University of North Carolina and actively writes really detailed books about why he believes the Bible is not true. I mean, because there are plenty of those too. It all comes back to, well, the Bible is just a human book. That's the perspective, right? And that it's an inconsistent human book is, is the claim that will get wagered there. However, um, we have lots of reasons to believe that's not true. And uh, again, we'll get into all those. I, it's so tough on a class like this because we're talking about the Spirit's work in inspiring the Bible. We're not talking about the Bible itself, which we're going to do. We have dedicated time for that. But the two kind of run into each other. Okay, so what we just need, I guess, for the purpose of this class to recognize we have a fundamentally different starting point than the non-believer. We start with God wrote a book. This is what he has said. The non-believer starts with all those things that we just shared, skepticism. And, and you have to challenge that starting point on the part of the non-believer. You, you have to engage those starting points. Because if you don't engage that, it really doesn't matter how much evidence you throw out there. 
You can throw out a whole bunch of evidence about why you believe the Bible's accurate or why you believe this, that, or the other thing. But if their starting point is unbelief, if their starting point is, no, I don't, I'm not going to believe in a God, if their starting point is, I am just firmly committed to my moral secularism or whatever it may be, well, you're not really going to get that far. You need to engage the non-believer on the starting points and always aim to discuss starting points. If man has tampered with the Bible, it is not Scripture. And so anybody who claims the name of Christ cannot entertain this idea that the Bible has been tampered with and has become a corrupted book, okay? God the Spirit's ministry concerning Scripture has transitioned from inspiration to illumination in our day, and that's where we'll go next in this next section, starting with 1 Corinthians 2. But I'll go ahead and pause there and see if there are any other thoughts or questions on those two texts we just looked at. Yeah, Yeah, the Jehovah's Witnesses, again, are a prime example of that. Uh, John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That's the New World Translation that the Jehovah's Witnesses use. Charles Taze Russell and the gang, that'd be a decent band name, wouldn't it? Maybe not. (laughs) Maybe that's like a jazz band in a hotel somewhere. Charles Taze Russell and the gang. They they changed the Word of God, not based on any... uh, um, Principles of grammar, not based on any actual manuscripts of the Bible. I mean, another place they did it is actually, um, oh, John eight fifty eight, which quotes uh, Exodus three fourteen. In Exodus three, you have Moses at the burning bush. He says, "Who shall I say has sent me?" Remember how the angel of the Lord speaks to him out of the bush and says, "Tell tell them the I am has sent you." They changed I am to I will become what I will become has sent you. So when Jesus quotes that in John 8, 58, they change that too. It's pretty goofy. So yeah, you, you have these groups out there that change the Bible to make it say, you know, what they want it to say to comport with their theology. And you can engage them on, a, uh, on the level of looking at the text. I did this at Onion Days a number of years ago. The Jehovah's Witnesses had a booth. And so that's like, you know, I'm like, Ooh, there's a target on them for me. You know, I'm going to go right over there. Like, I, I love nothing more than talking theology and talking about the Bible. So, yeah, if they want to do that, I'm all game. So, um, <clears throat> go over there, and, and they pulled up their app. And in their app, they have Greek next to English, even. You can do that in the Jehovah's Witness app. And to my surprise, the Greek was right. They didn't change the Greek. And so, we're looking at the Greek, and we're looking at the English, and I say, look at what the Greek says. And then look at this bad translation that you call the New World Translation. It just isn't what that says. He was unaffected. <laughs> he, he was unmoved by the reality that quite plainly, objectively speaking, this was a bad translation of a very simple Greek word. Um, and he, I don't know if that was the, I don't know if they call them pastors or bishops or what they call them. I don't know. I think he was the one of the head, head guys over there, and just didn't care. So that tells me, um, in cases such as that, which I think happen more often than not, that's really not going to be the tactic. The tactic is probably going to be just going to the gospel and asking the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin. And not, not necessarily, especially with people like that, not necessarily talking to them in such a way where you're trying to convince them, but proclaiming. Now, I'm not saying be a jerk. I'm not saying go up to him and, you know, take your bullhorn and jam it in his ear and, and just yell, 
you know, as close as you can get to profanity and still be a Christian to them. You know, I'm not saying that. But be confident and say, this is the gospel, and ask them, have, have you been born again? I, I think that's probably the, the way to do it. Because those people, I mean, to me, for something so obvious that their app has there, I mean, and what's crazy, their app with the Greek actually had the English transliteration underneath, which is showing you, like, word for word what the Greek means. It had that. So in the beginning, word was with God, and the word was God. It said that. Right next to it on the screen, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was a God. This side of the screen here, Mr. Jehovah's Witness guy, is telling you what this should say. And it doesn't. But when, when you have belief that God moved somebody back, you know, a couple hundred years ago to change the words, to re-inspire that, you know, that passage or whatever, you're, you're kind of stuck. It's the same with Mormons and uh, Joseph Smith. Yeah, that's pretty difficult because um, there are different flavors of King James onlyism. You only see this with King James. I don't know of any NIV onlyists. <laughs> well, that would be kind of fun if there were any. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, the, the King James onlyist, there are different flavors where you'll get some people who will say, look, God inspired an English translation. And that's really strong, right? I mean, he, he got these people together uh, in 1611, and they were inspired by the Holy Spirit to make one English translation. So any deviation from that is a deviation from the inspired English Bible. Now that's a kind of a whole different beast than people who are King James preferred and just really vocal about it. And those King James preferred people you can have a rational conversation with. But the people who say God re-inspired in the English, you can almost, you can't really talk to them about it. You can, I mean, it is one of the weakest doctrinal positions a person can take not, not saying it's without reason. I'm just saying it's really weak. I mean, people who are well-versed in it, no pun intended, will say that if you look at the manuscript tradition where the Greek text went, there were mainly three families. There was the Western, Alexandrian, and Byzantine. And the Byzantine area of textual families through the centuries was the most well-preserved and unaffected by bad theology. Because you had some theologians in the Alexandrian region who were starting to do goofy stuff with Scripture. And they started to create some errant readings of Scripture. And what kind of gets projected onto that is, well, those guys were creating new manuscripts of the New Testament and injecting their bad theology into it. Um, that is just a, a, a leap that I can't make. I don't think there's actually any evidence for that. And so, um, but, but you can have a conversation with those people. And as long as they're willing at the end of the day to just say, well, I just prefer the King James and, you know, you, you do you and I'll do me kind of thing. You can be at peace with those Christians. But the people who are like, God inspired one English Bible, that's like a cult at that point. Yeah. Father, again, we thank you so much for this day and all the wonderful things you've given us. We thank you for your word. This is a, a great treasure that we have. Help us to view it that way, that we would view your word as a treasure and cling to it as something more precious than gold. And uh, give us the motivation to dig in every day to be fed by you. And we ask that today as we go into the next part of our fellowship together this morning, that you would bless the service, that these songs we sing to you would be sung with hearts that are oriented with your will, and that we'd be drawn closer to you as we dwell on what you've said in Second Corinthians 5. God, thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.